0: Hi, welcome back to another edition of the Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Um, as I like to do on these podcasts, I like to tell a little story to start off that sort of uh, identifies myself and connects myself to my guest. Um, and my guest today is, uh, Brant Prinvidic. I can never pronounce his name properly, but I hope I did it there. Uh, it's a very tough name. He should get married and, and change his name. But, uh, anyway, so, uh, we, uh, came together and met for the first time, uh, at new wave entertainment. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about how that came about for me and how it came about for, uh, for Brandt. um. At the time, I was looking for uh, a place where I could do production and, uh, and go and do, uh, editing and have cameras and have producers. And I, at the time I was producing television shows, I was just running around town everywhere, going to an editing bay here, a color correction there. And it was very, very difficult. And I had a place in New York, an office and a place in LA. And I decided this is enough. And honed everything down. And my attorney, uh, Debbie Klein at the time was a very, uh, incredible lawyer, uh, told me to go to a place called New Wave Entertainment to meet a guy named Michael Gruber. Now, for those of you who don't know who Michael Gruber is, uh, Michael Gruber was an agent One of the few agents at William Morris who uh, represented comedy talent, who broke into film, and also represented dramatic actors who were incredible, that were huge film stars and, and television stars. And I met with Michael, and I'll never forget the meeting. I'm in his office, and there's boxes, these banker's boxes with files all around the office. and. I said, uh, how long you been here? And he said, uh, about six months. And I thought to myself, I've got to come to this company because anybody who's in an office where there's bankers' boxes of files on the floor after six months and there's nothing on the walls, they're not going to be there that much longer. And I figured uh if he wasn't going to be there that much longer, it would be a situation where there would be more and more opportunity because he was in a situation where he was doing his own thing and had an agenda that he wanted to do, which was a really wonderful, uh, he had a wonderful agenda, but I also had my agenda that I wanted to take care of. And he had a partner named Matt Walden, who had been working in the music industry, I believe, and he'd been producing a lot of different things who happened to be the husband of Dana Walden, who is the co-chairman with Gary Newman of uh, News Corp's 20th Television. And um, she was huge and is huge in the business. Um, She's worked on such shows as Modern Family, Family Guy, Simpsons, Glee. And they had the vision to start a reality division where they were going to bring in a young man to run the reality and the person they heard was really special was my guest today uh, Brandt, and he had done a put together a show in in Canada which I want him to tell you about which is a pretty amazing story as a young man which was gaining a lot of heat and so all of a sudden after doing something and taking a risk there up in Canada in a small town in Victoria The results of his risk created a bidding war. He had a huge offer from New Wave Entertainment, and Dick Clark, the great legendary Dick Clark, personally called him up and asked him to run reality for him and made him a huge, huge offer as well. And he was going back and forth, Brant, because he couldn't really figure out what to do because maybe Dick Clark was getting a little older and he wasn't sure the direction of the company and, and, and whether they were ready to get to the next level. And New Wave Entertainment was a company that we were just really starting. It was more of a post and production house. But we had the vision that we could make it into a management company and a production company and and create films and television shows. And we had this huge, huge facility that had 50 editing bays. And there were 200 people that worked there. And there were people working on Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. And they were creating trailers and finishing trailers. And it was a really magical thing. When you walked around, you really literally looked around and said, holy Moses, this is, this is pretty, uh, incredible. Yet they, had never had their name on anything because they weren't allowed to put their name on anything. Because if you're working, if you're doing the posters for George Lucas, George Lucas doesn't want you to know that your company is doing the posters. He wants people to believe that he's doing the posters. If you're doing the trailer for Batman, Warner Brothers doesn't want you to know that you're doing the trailer for Batman. So it was like an anonymous kind of company, which at the time when I got there, I felt was a great opportunity to take the machinery that they had, the talented people that they had in all areas and harness it and bring it forward. And Brandt, um, at the time, probably was thinking, hey, these guys haven't done anything before, but we got Michael Gruber there. He's done a lot of great stuff in his career. We got Matt Walden. This place is amazing. But he's got Dick Clark, who's done probably over 50,000 hours of television. Huge offers from this young kid. Doesn't know what to do. What's he going to do? So he calls a guy he knows in town that just happens to be his hometown, uh, a, a guy who lived in his hometown, David Foster, one of the biggest and most powerful uh, music producers in the world. And he meets with David Foster in his mansion. And David he asks him, What should I do? And David says, I can't tell you what to do, but I'm gonna make a phone call. And we're gonna drive down um, to this man's office and 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 he'll be able to tell you what to do. And that man was Les Moonbez, who was running CBS at the time. And Brand couldn't believe it, but David made the call and they just jumped in the car and went down there. They go in to Les's huge, huge office, and he sits down. He says, listen, I have a, a huge offer from New Wave Entertainment, and I have a huge offer from Dick Clark, Dick Clark Productions. And Les Moonves uh, looked at him in the room, and he said, I will help you with your decision. I will help you make your decision. But what I tell you in this room today, if any of it ever gets out, and I ever hear of anything I say to you in this room, gets out in this town, you will never work in this town again. And after the meeting, Brandt left that office, went home to his wife, and said, we're going to New Wave Entertainment. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it, because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: Here we go in three, two... We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry and semen.
0: Infections
1: caused by jacuzzi water. I'm
0: not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? How about the air?
0: All right, I'm very excited about this uh, interview today for this podcast. Um, my guest today is a guy that is entrenched in reality. Um, and in this town, reality uh, is perception. It's incredible all the things that are happening on television. This guy's been at the forefront of so many of them, and he came from a place that was a small town in Canada and has risen to be the president of, um, iWorks USA, formerly Three Ball Productions, where he's developed more than three dozen shows for the company, including Splash, Extreme Weight Loss, Bar Rescue, my big fat revenge at a company that's one of the largest reality companies in the world, uh, probably most famous for their most inspirational hit series, the biggest loser. And, um, he's just an amazing guy who knows so much about the reality business. And I thought this would be a great opportunity for our viewers and our listeners to be able to understand the reality world and also understand what it takes to get from, a small town to the big town. Please welcome my guest today, Brant Pinvidic. Welcome, Brant. Hello, Barry. Nice to be here. It's so great to have you here, man. So I want, because so many people come to this town with that dollar and a dream, they try to make it, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. You were in Canada. I want you to take me through where was when was the moment that happened where you said, uh, I want to be in show business, I want to be in the business in some way. And then what were the steps that you took to try to get in the business?
1: Um, You know, I listen, the moment about show business, the interesting about show businesses, I think people look at it and they go, oh, my God, I could do that. That's so easy. You know, I think it's like singers, and why American Idol became so popular is that people thought, "Well, I could do that. I'll just go and audition." And I, I think I had just the sort of sublime ignorance and arrogance to think that TV was easy. Reality TV, which had just started, looked like it was anybody could do it. And so, in my brain up in Canada, I thought, "Well, I'll just come up with this idea. I liked it, and uh, I just went and tried to make it." And sort of the sad and painful reality that I learned early was that it's not quite as easy as it looks. And so holding on to the ignorance and arrogance while the truth was sort of whacking me in the face, uh, you know, ironically helped land me in the United States because as I kept facing, uh, you know, unyielding
0: negativity in Canada. But what was the negativity? Like, what were you doing? What were you, in other words, what were you doing before the vision of show business came in? Where were you working? What kind of jobs um, were you doing? I like? owned nightclubs and bars and restaurants. And I had. So you're a nightclub promoter.
1: Sort of. and then I, But I mostly just a serial entrepreneur. and Failed in some mildly successful, many not so successful. And, back and
0: forth. W- were you married at the time? Or? I was married, yeah. So you were how old, and you were married, and you were doing these... I
1: was married when I was 21, so it was about you 25, 26, I owned a nightclub, and I used to always come up with crazy ideas to keep people in the bar longer.
0: Tell me some of those crazy ideas.
1: What we used to do on the football games on the Sunday, we'd have these huge crowds of people come in.
0: Canadian football.
1: No, everybody would watch American football in Canada. Okay. Sunday, football, everybody would be in the bar, and then the second the games were over, everybody would clear out, and I'd have an empty bar on Sunday night. So I used to start to come up with ideas for bar games that would keep people later um, goofing around. I put a basketball hoop in the thing. I had an inflatable boxing ring that I would inflate and do crazy goofy things and sexy things that would earn girls shots and stuff. And so it, it started to be this goofy fun event that eventually turned into an idea for a TV show in various bars across the country. So when I went and filmed those mm-hmm. ideas thinking that was a TV show, I did it with my own money and borrowed money. Without any help from a broadcaster, without any help from anybody that could have given me insight into what the television business or how it works.
0: Got it. So at the time, you just basically decided to take the risk, use your own money from what you were doing. Shoot something that you envision could be a television show. Yeah. And And tell us about that. Tell us about that concept.
1: The concept was the biggest party kings in the country. I would go to nightclubs. I would have all the people in the, in the local town compete in various goofy bar games. The audience would vote who was the sexiest, most fun, wildest partier of that town. Every winner from each of the town would then come together in Mexico for a spring break-esque type showdown to see who was the greatest partier in the country. And so, I just basically looked at the outline and thought, what a great idea, sort of survivor for partying. Everyone will want it. Sponsors will want to be involved in it. It's going to make lots of money. Why do I need to ask anybody's opinion about this? This is obviously the right answer. I'm just going to go do this.
0: And it was all your vision. It was all, there was no other person helping you in terms of the creative. You created and figured it all out. You shot it, and then did you make an, a full episode, or you just make like a five-minute sizzle reel?
1: Well, I couldn't afford to make the episodes, and I couldn't when I was pitching it to the broadcasters, I couldn't get anybody even remotely interested.
0: The Canadian broadcasters. The Canadian broadcasters. Who so I you pitched would it, to, it up. so you pitched to them without the video.
1: Yeah, well, I pitched them without the video. Nobody would even. So listen.
0: how did you get the meetings, knowing you're this guy who's a nightclub promoter? owner and you have to get you have to get meetings with network executives in canada
1: it didn't really work like that in canada i got people who knew sort of people who could ask people about what would what was in and it just took so long and people weren't unresponsive and my local tv station didn't buy programming and basically what i kept running into is that nobody bought canadian programming they just aired american programming but i didn't do enough due diligence to figure out that's what it's like for all of Canada, I just figured like that was, what it was like for my hometown. So I just thought, well, if I go film it all, then they won't be able to say no and I'll make a whole bunch of money. So I just started building it. And I just sort of, again, the arrogance of at the time was just, I know how to, I can figure this out. How hard can it be?
0: So you start shooting. How much do you spend after you shoot it, you edit it? You get it down. How much does it cost you of your own money? The
1: first run of my own money was almost a hundred grand.
0: A hundred thousand yeah. dollars. When I say own my money, own
1: money, my own money, a little bit of my parents' money, a little bit of friends' money, a little bit of investor
0: money. But a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. So then plus, you take yeah. your next round of meetings at the network with the actual footage. Yeah, and I, I added together this amazing trailer. I learned Final Cut
1: because somebody said I had to learn i could figure that. I didn't have money to edit it. And then I also, which is one of the single reasons I'm in the United States at this time is I decided to make these little booklets that to show what it would be like if I edited it. So I took these screen captures of each sort of scene and laid it out. And I figured that I don't have the money, but I could at least show them what it would look like when it's edited so they believe me. And I thought, for sure, all I had to do is show this to people. I'm going to have people bidding like crazy. The painful reality of Canadian television and the reason why there is not a lot of good to Canadian television is that nobody wants Canadian television. So the broadcasters are like, well, why would we want this? We can buy an episode of Friends for $31,000. Why would we spend anything on something that's not that good? They buy Canadian television to fulfill a government mandate. Once they've filled that mandate, they just want to buy American stuff, the stuff that everybody wants to watch. So I could have figured this out going in if I had spent any time researching it or trying. If I didn't think I knew everything about everything at the time – Probably would have figured out this was going to be a futile effort. So, But the stuff looked really good. So I was able to get more people involved, potentially financially. And so, again, my sort of blind ambition was, well, the reason they're not buying it is because all I've done is I've gone across the country and got the, the winners from each location in the bars across canada i haven't done the finale that's the real end of the show that's why it's not a complete episode it's not a complete series you understand barry right obviously of course so i raise some more money and i go down to mexico and i make some deals (laughs) and i fly 23 contestants from (laughs) people down to mexico and i shoot another why mexico because it was cheap and it's sort of cancun is the party capital of the world type thing and uh,
0: You couldn't do Bangor, Maine. Wasn't no. that closer to you?
1: No. And I convinced <laughs> one of the large. It was great because I convinced one of the largest resorts to pay- let us have the rooms and stuff. And
0: I didn't have a broadcast. Let you have the rooms for free. Yeah.
1: And it was on the promise that it was going to be so good that that I'm going to bidding wars from bar broadcasters. Anyways, somehow I got them to do that. I got deals. I got people to fund it. I got down there. That was about 135,000.
0: So now we're at 235,000. Yeah. yeah,
1: plus. So we get that we shoot all of this. And again, I still don't have the money to edit it all into episodes. I make another booklet of this. is exactly what it looks like. This is going to be amazing.
0: I is come, it one of those booklets like you do in camp where you draw on the side and you flip the pages and it shows the I mean, movie
1: going through? Is that how you did it? Yes. A little bit like that. Like every episode had what the interviews were going to be and who the contestants did what. It was a whole thing, right? Come back to Canadian television and guess what? Nobody wants it. and so I can't figure it out everybody that sees it thinks it's amazing it's unbelievable it's fun I can't believe it was put together how did you do it but nobody wants it and so at the point where my parents were
0: saying you need to get a job like but you owned a nightclub. No,
1: no, no. I, I was long gone. So was, in other I words, you, on my own,
0: living in my parents' basement. You lived in your parents' basement. Yes. How old are I, you?
1: I'm 27
0: years old. You're, you're married. I'm married. You have I have many a kids. two-year-old child. You have child. a two-year-old child, and you're living for free in your parents' basement. That's right. And they've given you... And, and i and then give sold you parts of $235,000. We
1: sold our house, my wife and I, uh-huh. sold our house to to pay for part of this and, and pay off the credit cards that I had racked up. How
0: did you sell time. that to your wife?
1: Uh, I mean, I don't really remember how she bought into it so many times, you know, but then we racked up the credit cards again. So we were at the point where we had one car left. I had, a, you know, the wife died, nothing else. And my parents were like, you need to get a job. Like, <laughs> it's time for you to get a job. <laughs> and so... I ended up calling people and asking people and then, you know, I wanted to go down to the United States. I always pictured it as like an MTV thing or whatnot. And so I finally found a producer person that knew a producer person who knew a producer person in Los Angeles.
0: And you'd never been to the States.
1: Never been You know? And so uh this woman, her name was Mary Allo, lovely lady. No idea what she did, very, you know, TV movie producer, not not a, I would say a sort of recognizable name in the business, let's let's say that. But she agreed to take a meeting with me. They, everybody wanted me to send this stuff. I was like, just take a meeting with me, please. So I flew down to Los Angeles. I didn't have enough money to pay for the hotel because I had to buy a seven-day flight because it was the cheapest, but I could only afford to put five days of the hotel on my credit card at the time. I figured I'd figure it out. So I come down, I take the meeting, I show this Mary Aloe person. This is the beginning of reality, when reality is just sort of getting started, when people would just be like, I have a general idea.
0: Tell me what reality shows were on the air besides the real world at the time you came down. Survivor
1: had just come on. Uh American Idol had just debuted.
0: Got it. Okay. And that
1: was really, there was, The Bachelor was just getting ready to start. I mean, it was really early. It was early in the process. So, she thought it was amazing looking at the book. She's like, wow, this is crazy. I can't believe this is, a, I don't, I, I've never met anybody who's pitched a show this full before. Everybody just has idea, but she had no idea what to do with it. So she introduced me to another producer, maybe a little higher caliber than she was. And he had the same sort of reaction. Then he introduced me to another producer a little bit higher than he was. And he had the same reaction, but none of them knew what to do. So eventually it ended up going to a guy named Doug Schwartz, who was a creator of Baywatch and whatnot. It had a deal in this reality world.
0: But Doug wasn't a reality guy. Not
1: yet. He was really—he was just teetering on the edge of getting into it. And to me, he was the ultimate ultimate. This guy created Baywatch. He's the man. I couldn't believe I was meeting with him. I was so excited. And after he sort of poured on the, oh, my God, this is great. I- I've never seen anybody do this much work on something. It's a great concept. He wanted to do it. I was literally ready to just give him everything. Just because at home I had so many doubters and people who just thought I was crazy and I was like, I need money, twenty five thousand bucks, and you can do whatever you want with it, and you'll you will be partners, and you can have everything, right? I just need twenty five grand. He so
0: asked him for twenty five grand upfront, twenty grand, five grand, and two nights to stay in this hotel. Exactly. So earth house.
1: What was great was and this is a good turn. Now Doug could have written that check without even blinking. He probably had it in his desk drawer. But in the reality business, you don't really pay for options like this. It's not really the way it's done. So. He's scratching his head and deciding what to do, and he made a fatal flaw. Brilliant for me. I thank him to this day for making this move. But he decided he wanted to take me around a little bit and just see how much interest could get garnered from it.
0: So the first meeting we took was with his agent. Now, let's stop for a second. What day of the trip is it? You're here for seven this days. This is day one. Oh, you're on day No, this is day
1: two, sorry, day when two. I met with Doug. Yeah.
0: And you meet his agent that day or on day three? Day
1: three, I meet the agent.
0: Okay, who's the agent?
1: Hayden Meyer.
0: Hayden Meyer. He's
1: at UTA. Yeah. The first agent I've ever met in my life. I talked to Hayden. He, I pitched him the whole thing. I walked through the whole thing. It's an hour meeting of going all, where all this stuff is. You know how agents are when they get excited about something they can sell. He starts bouncing off the walls where we can sell it, how it's going to work, where all this money's going to come. How easy. Just, it's going to be a plethora of amazement. So he's all excited. So then he takes me to see his lawyer, who's Lieberkeen. Same result. She's all excited. Oh, what a great piece of project. We're about to leave the room and she calls me over and she's like, I have dozens of clients that are the biggest and the best in this business. I don't know any of them that could put together a a package like this. If you need representation, call me up. (laughs) Right? So I was like, wow, that's cool. So Doug had a a deal at, at Fox. Took me to see David Martin and David Grant.
0: And, Dave, this was Fox Alternative at That's the correct. time, which is David Martin, just to let our audience know, David started, as far as I know, as a manager, and he managed some of the greatest uh, comedians uh, like Dana Gould and um, Brett Butler, and, uh, and then he sort of got out of the um, management business and he went to and I believe he ran a Fox network there and then he came back and he got a job as Fox Alternative running their alternative television division and um and with his uh yeah, one he of He was over
1: at Fox TV Studios at the time as well overseeing that. Yes. So I met with them cuz that's where Doug had his deal and he showed them all the stuff and they had sort of the same reaction. This is amazing. We could do this. We're going to be able to sell this to MTV. We can take this network. We can do all this stuff, right? Hmm. Seemed interesting. The problem was over the course of the day, I realized that I had all of these people who were relatively big people and new stuff and through the entire process, Doug Schwartz never said one single word, nothing. I did all the pitch for the show. Of course it's my, you know, and I realized like, what is, I mean, other than making these introductions, I, I don't know what, what I'm getting with this guy now that, you know, I'm getting all this attention. So As he had dragged his feet a little bit on the $25,000, the word had started to spread about this project, probably through UTA and whatnot, and I started to get other strange calls. And one of the calls was from uh, uh, Jimmy Miller,
0: or Miller Gold. Jimmy Miller, of course, uh, a manager producer who uh, Gold Gold Miller at the time. Um, Just to interject here for a second, because I think it's important. When I first came to this town, um, I'll tell you a little story, and I think it's important, Uh, how you come to a town and what happens just like you do. I came to this town, and I wanted my own office in this town. I said, i got to have an office in this town. Where's the place to go? Well, there's the laugh Factory, the improv, whatever. And I looked at the Director's Guild building, this round, beautiful building on Sunset, and I said, I have to be in that building. And I walked to the front, and I said, listen, could you tell me, uh, if they're renting offices here, he says, yes, they are. They're renting them on the fourth floor. And there's a guy up there with Spectacore films. He rents offices. I go up there. I meet with the guy. He says it's $600 for a small office and assistant station. I'm like, sold. I'll take it. I rent the office. I go to the elevator bank. Okay. And just as I'm pressing the elevator. I look at this writing on the elevator wall in gold, Messina Baker Miller. Messina Baker Miller. I go to the receptionist and says, where is Messina Baker Miller? They said, they're right next to your office. And my office... Was right next to Richard Baker, Rick Messina, who represented and still represent Drew Carey and Tim Allen, and of course, Jimmy Miller, uh, Dennis Miller's brother, who was a huge manager in his own right. And in the pit, in the assistant pit, were uh, quite a unique threesome. You had Mia Apatow, who was Judd Apatow's sister, who worked with Ben Stiller on Cable Guy. You had Julie Wixon, who's now Julie Darmody, who oversees Jimmy Miller's Mosaic Management Division and reps everyone from Isla Fisher to Andy Sandberg. And the final person in the pit was Dave Becky, who, uh of course, works at Three Arts Entertainment and reps some of the biggest comedians in the business, like Bill Burr and Kevin Hart and Louis C.K. And at the time when I walked in, Jimmy Miller was walking back and forth. And for those of you who don't know Jimmy Miller, he's a very serious guy, he has a great sense of humor, but it's very dry. He's very, very laid back in a way when you meet him, and you don't really know if your person doesn't know him, you don't know where you stand. And I'd known him for a while, but he was animated this day. He was pacing back and forth and back and forth, and I'm like, "What's what's the matter?" He said, "Listen, I, I just..." Jim Carrey, uh, we, we decided to put him in this movie and we're just really nervous uh, about it because, you know, everybody passed on the movie and we, we don't know what's going to happen. It's opening this weekend. And, uh, you know, if this doesn't do well, it's, you know, Jim's career is, it, it's going to be over. I said, what's the name of the movie? He said, uh, Ace Ventura. And the rest is history. So anyway, go back to your thing with Jimmy Miller.
1: Well, What I didn't know at the time was is that Jimmy Miller's group had bought Dick Clark, the production they bought into it. And since Dick Clark was chasing the project as well, that's how he sort of reached out. So when I went to go take a meeting with Jimmy, I mean, it's an impressive meeting with that guy. He's got two assistants and he's running around. He's got a treadmill in his office. He's got a headset. It's just like everything you've ever dreamed of Hollywood wrapped up into one bald headed (laughs) God, you know, you're just like, this is the greatest moment of my life. And I was so weakened from this. This is now day four and I'm so tired and like worn out. I don't know what to do. I'm just dying. And so he's talking to me about the potential and where it is. And this is a young guy like yourself. This is great and good for you. And I, I literally broke down and I was like, listen, I don't know what to do. You're like the greatest guy in the world whatever you say to do, I'm going to do. You want me to, do you want Dick Clark to have, you want to have this, you just tell me what to do with it. I'll do whatever you said. So he looks at everything and he looks through the whole thing and he goes, let me be honest with you. You don't need me. And you don't need Dick Clark for this project. You don't need any of these guys. What you need is an agent. Let them deal with it because you've done so much work and there's so much here. Let them deal with it.
0: Which is why I have so much respect for Jimmy Miller because there's certain Managers and producers in this business that they just hear something and they want to be part of something really special, and they know that they have nothing that they can do or add to that particular thing, but they still want to be a part of it that're attached, they're a producer, they'll get the check or whatever it is, and very, very few people will tell you how it is and put themselves down. And bring another entity forward. And
1: And I just couldn't
0: believe it. So he picked up the phone
1: and called Endeavor, which is, like got Ari on the phone. Ari
0: Emanuel. Ari
1: Emanuel and said, hey, I've got this project. And Ari goes, is that that Canadian kid that's been (laughs) running around? (laughs) And he goes, yes. And he goes, great. So he he says, great. I'm going to send my top agent down to meet with him right now.
0: So what day are we on now? We are on day four. Day four. One more day and right. there's no hotel for you.
1: Right. <laughs> so the next night- Who's his top five? agent? He Sean the- Perry.
0: Sean Perry, who is now
1: at- uh, William Morris Devers, yeah. the head of the department. Mm-hmm. Um, so he comes down. It is game two of the World Series. Sean Perry has to drive in and meet with me. He could just tell he was you know, beyond comprehension. He didn't want to do this. What year was this? This is now
0: nine years ago. Who's in the World Series? Oh, man. I can't remember. Don't anything. worry about it. Keep man. going.
1: So he meets with me. He tells me, Hey, you know, we're a good agency. We do great stuff. I, this is only the second agent I've ever met in my life. So I'm just like, I don't even know what you people do. And I get, I get these people in my ear all day long. What am I going to do? He says, come see me tomorrow morning. We'll figure this out. Come to the agency.
0: Meanwhile, the poor bastard at UTA who thought right. he really had you. He had you in the palm of his hand. You're right. now taking... Two days later, you're fucking him over and going to well, Sean see, Perry. Well,
1: Hayden had never reached out to me to represent, because he represented Doug, so that would be a conflict of interest. So mm-hmm. Hayden followed protocol. So I went and met with the guys at Endeavor, and they lined up 30 agents in this gigantic... The biggest conference room I've ever seen in my life. <gasps> oh, my God. They told me how great I was. and
0: On day five, uh, checkout day. Literally, checkout day. <laughs> so you have your bag and your rent-a-car. You- so...
1: Literally, I'm supposed to be leaving on Wednesday. It's Monday morning. Okay. So they basically say, forget everything. Stop answering your phone. Give me 48 hours. I will have you in front of every network president. We will
0: sell this show. And you said, can you just put me up in a hotel?
1: (laughs) So that's when I talked to David Foster and I said, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. He lets me stay at his house, so I check out of the hotel. <laughs> I move over to David Foster's place. David Foster so gives me- So you give them the
0: authority in 48 hours? Yes. Okay.
1: I agree that I will not take anybody else's calls or emails. And by this time, I had Jerry Bruckheimer's com- company calling. I had Don Johnson call. I had the weirdest, but I was just, I, you know, I didn't know anything about anything. I say, okay, I'll wait. So David Foster says, come stay at the house. You know you're out of the hotel. Or I, I come stay at his house. David Foster gives me $5,000 in cash for no reason. He says- <laughs> Whatever you do, don't do something stupid because you can't afford. You know what I mean? Just relax. This will all work out. They
0: gave you the five thousand. and You right. said, "David, I need I need twenty yeah. more. It's twenty five thousand is what I need." So he
1: says you should get a lawyer. So he he drove. He did the same thing he did with the last Moonves
0: call. He picked a phony, called Skip Brittenham,
1: and said, "Hey, I need you to meet this guy." You know, and at the time the lawyers did the same. They we're going to represent it. We'll be your lawyer. And I said to Skip Brittenham. I got to be honest. I, I already got enough debt. Like I can't afford to pay another lawyer. I'm sorry. I'm going to pass. And they all laugh hysterically. Like, we, let us figure out how we get paid. Young man, we'll figure that out.
0: For so, those of you who don't know, uh, entertainment lawyers in Hollywood are a different breed. 99% of them work on 5% of the gross of what you make. And there are uh, great lawyers like Bill Sobel who work on an hourly rate, but for the most part, they're all 5%ers. Yeah. So, you know, We ended up going to every major
1: network. We met every network president and the head of alternatives. We had four
0: offers on the show. And it was NBC that... Let's talk about the people that you met who were in charge at those networks at the time. And tell our audience what it's like to walk in and pitch a reality show. Who you go in the room with. How it works who you're meeting with and what transpires normally because I think that's important to pull back the curtain and to show to our audience what actually happens because the, all they do is you know you know if you're somebody like where I'm from in Longmeadow Massachusetts you're watching a show and you know all of a sudden whatever splash comes on you don't know what it took to get splash going all you know is that you're watching it
1: yeah at the end of the day you're you know you're meeting with the head of the reality department who sort of gleans the pitches and decides what's right for their network. Usually going in with your agent who sort of represents that this is a represented property. not a hundred percent sure what they do exactly, but they're there usually. And the idea is after you get through the small talk, hi, how's it going? What are you doing? Oh, how's the weather? It's like, okay, what's your idea? Um, and then really the crucial part of that is being able to illustrate the elements of the idea in a concise manner that make, the buyer understand why it's going to work, how it's going to work, how it fits them, why people will like it, trying to address any shortfalls or issues with the show. You know, usually that's a five to a 10 minute process of outlining all this stuff. And then, you know, you'll get questions from the buyer of, Oh, what about this? So do you do it this way? What's your, you know, idea? Some buyers are less likely to ask questions than others. And so, you, you know, then the idea is to play the room, Trying to answer the questions the way they want you to answer them, or the way you think they want to hear it, so that you can get them to the point where they feel like, "Hey, this is something I should be talking to the people upstairs about because this is really good." And the idea in that room is to try to make everybody feel like this is such a good idea; somebody else will want it too. There's a you you need to have somewhat of a competitive atmosphere.
0: And out of the entire uh, meeting. I would guess that you spoke for about 97% of the time on your side of the table. You were the guy pitching the show. Yes.
1: The agent will give you an introduction. This is Barry Katz. He's a great manager. Everybody knows him. He loves him. He's been great at all these things. He came up with this idea here. We really liked it. You know, I think Barry really has a great idea here. Oh, thanks, Brant Pimidic, the agent. And then you would start in with, here's the idea. Two people on a couch. They're going to do a podcast. You're going to do it every week. People are going to listen to it. It's going to be great. Here's why. And you go into it. And so, yeah, you lay out all of the elements as clearly and concisely as possible.
0: So here you are, (laughs) literally seven days earlier. Yes. You're in your parents' basement with your wife and your two-year-old, a failed nightclub owner and promoter. And now you're meeting with every president of every of network, every network yeah. in reality there is. Now, tell me the reality presidents that were there at the time See, nine was, years ago, if you can remember any of them.
1: Lloyd Braun was at ABC. Oh, I can't remember who was NBC. It was Jeff Gaspin when I was at, N- at NBC. Who
0: sold, uh, we sold Last Comic Standing, too. Yeah.
1: And then at CBS was Gen Maynard was there yeah. at CBS at the time. Fox was still Mike Darnell and I think it was Sandy Groucho at the time was there. Got
0: it. So you go, you take those meetings, yeah. they all go great.
1: Well, now let me, you know, cause people say, listen, of the reputation of the things that I do well and the things I do p- poorly, I have many reputations on both. But one of them is I'm a, I'm a relatively good salesperson. I'm pretty good in a room that's, you know, been one of my strong suits. And what I tell people is like that room to me was not overly intimidating or overly difficult because I had been in people's living room where if I didn't get a check for $5,000 to invest in my idea, I wouldn't eat. And it's like, that's what's, that's how you learn to sell when like, when you don't eat, if you don't close the deal, like getting in a room with these guys and trying to convince them that this idea is good was I had pitched that idea and the merits of it a thousand times in the most desperate ways. So this was just a version of that. So
0: you weren't even nervous.
1: I would not say I was not nervous at all. I was excited and I was like, I just felt like this is the golden moment of all golden moments, you know?
0: So then what happens?
1: Jeff Gaspin called... Right, we were in the parking lot of ABC where we had a most amazing meeting at ABC ever. We came down the the thing. Lance Klein, who was Sean Perry's partner at the time, if you know Lance Klein, he's a he's a pretty m- mellow straight guy, and he was doing he was jumping in the elevator. Never seen him jump in my life. He's jumping up and down. He's so excited about the meeting we just did at ABC. We're in the parking lot at ABC, and the phone rings, and it's Jeff Gaspin from NBC from NBC who we had just met with, and he said. I have, and I, you could hear, I could hear it in the phone. He goes, "I have no idea who that kid is, where he came from, or how he does what he does." I got t- teams of people that don't do this for shows. We want to hire him. I want him to come be a, like a show doctor to come turn make booklets on shows that we're doing. <laughs> and so I was screaming, trying to scream in the phone. Yes, take it, take it. I'll take it. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so Sean Perry's sort of telling me to. Zzz, as, as Lance Klein says, I don't think that's going to work, Jeff. You're getting a lot of heat on this show. He's probably going to go with the show. And I'm like, I can't believe these agents are screwing me over. I could have a job. Like, oh, my God. And two seconds later, Jeff goes, oh, no, we're taking the show. I'll take him, too. So NBC ends up making an offer. To do it. It's a great offer.
0: Do the other people make an offer?
1: Everybody makes an offer. NBC's the best offer and they're offering me to come and be a show doctor at the same time. Now, here's the most terrifying moment of my life. My flight is in the morning. The offer is in and Sean Perry says, go home. We'll let you know how this goes. And I'm like, w- w- go What do you mean? Go home? <laughs> like, where am I supposed to? What do you mean? This is, and he goes, no, this is what, don't worry. This is what we do. So if you can imagine flying back to Canada... I arrive in my hometown, my parents, my wife, what's going on. And you're trying to tell them names like Jeff Gaspin and Jimmy Miller. And and they're like, what? And my dad literally says, where's the check? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't get a check. Okay, where's the contract? Oh, well, they don't do that in LA. Oh, they don't sign contracts in LA. Is that the way it works over there? And I'm like, oh my God. And so I literally get to spend the net. And, you know, deals don't close overnight. and
0: They don't close for a long, right. long so, time.
1: And then there was the Christmas holiday. Cause this was in October. So it wasn't till this, the, everything didn't close. And I got my first check in January because NBC paid a $25,000 option fee for it. Nice. So, but I didn't get it till January. So I had to go that entire time, three months, without anybody really believing that any of this actually happened. And in, in my brain, I'm talking about how I want to moved to LA and had this offer from NBC to come work there and, and whatnot. And so when I finally go back in January with this closed deal and they're talking about me working, that's when I started taking meetings and Sean Perry, God bless him to this day, started picking up the phone and say, Hey, you remember that kid you met from Canada? He's going to be off the market. NBC's going to take him. And Dick Clark, I'm sure is like, who, what? Oh, well, if NBC wants him, we want him. And then, and then Dave Martin, Dave, Gr- same thing. Well, we want him. We'll make an offer. And, and that's why I met Matt. And well, you can come run our reality division. And everybody's all of a sudden thinking I belonged here after I've been here once. And it was all because Sean Perry just said NBC's going to take him off the market, and everybody just went crazy because that's the way it was—the Wild West back then.
0: But why didn't you want to be taken off the market? Why didn't you oh, want to go to Barry, NBC? I did.
1: I wanted, it, but the if, I, if the NBC's I remember the offer NBC offer better than no. The... NBC's offer was fifty grand to come be like a show doctor. I was going to come in and work on various things. Got it. And then the the other offers were six figures, one hundred and twenty five, one hundred and fifty. Probably, I think I, I think I closed with New Wave just over one hundred and fifty. Mm-hmm. And at the time when my wife was making forty thousand dollars as a, as a IBM manager, that was a lot of money. And I would have, I would have, I've, I've told Sean Perry. Just get me like $50,000. I'll sleep on someone's couch. That's it. I can live here. And they laugh. You can't live in LA for $50,000. I can I was like, I could. I would do it. I would move here tomorrow. So that's when all that started coming. And that's when David's, when I said, I still don't know what to do. I can't trust the, I mean, the agents are telling me this and that and the other thing. I don't know who to believe.
0: So what happened with the show?
1: Well, you know, in, in the truth is the reason why New Wave was so excited to get me over there is if they got me to come work there, it came with producing a network show. That was a big moment for them. So we hired a big, huge
0: showrunner. And a lot of times, just so you know, um when you're leveraging your deal, you try to bring what you can to show people what they're going to get if they hire you. Right. So part of Brandt's lawyer's strategy was to show New Wave that, hey, you get this guy, you pay a buck and a half. But you're going to get the production on the show. It could be a million dollars an episode, and right. you know, you guys, you know you at least take 30% off the top on your production, your editing base, whatever. This is what you're going to get. Yeah. And so the heat was on. You got it. They looked towards the future, and they thought, hey, we're going to get some financial remuneration here, and yep. uh, we're going to get a reality yep. guy.
1: So we've hired a big showrunner. We made a pilot a in Vegas. Runner. Bob Cuspit.
0: Yeah. Made this pilot in Vegas and
1: nothing. That was it. That was the end of it. Never got picked up. Never got made. Gone.
0: When you watched the pilot, <laughs> all of that. <laughs> when you watched the pilot, did you look at it and say, "This is a great," or did you look at it and say, oh, "It was.
1: It was just completely different than what we had done. It wasn't in the same show in any way, shape, or form. It was totally different. It was this Vegas-based thing, and it.
0: And it what, was and your, thought, what was your credit on the show? Executive producer. So you were an executive producer. Yep. You'd worked hard to get this thing going. They bring in a showrunner. How much influence did you have on the show?
1: I mean, not much other than when we were starting about the idea, but like making it and stuff. None. I mean, I literally had been in the country for four minutes. The best part of it was, though, after meeting all of these people with big high-powered agent and doing all that stuff, you got to remember, these people had just got their jobs as well. There was no reality divisions at these networks. So like Andrea Wong had just gone over there. And they just started their jobs and Jeff Gasman just started hiring people and Jamila Hunter was over there and it was this, these new groups. So when we started coming up with other ideas for reality shows, we would walk into these networks and they just thought I was one of the group. I was, uh, I was allowed past the moat and the drawbridge came down and they just figured I was in the, in the crew. Nobody knew my goofy story or that I didn't know anything about anything and then I just walked in
0: you got to deal a deal at new wave I believe yeah. it was a one, one year, year deal with a, yeah. with a one year option of their That's correct chance you're probably wondering how I know that i you know I always thought that I was a great salesperson. I always thought like I could sell anything go out and then I worked hard and I got out there and you were just like literally always on the go always there'd always be this this huge cardboard thing with this paste up of these graphics and that you bring in the room that you put in your trunk and you'd be every day you'd be out pitching and for some reason when you were at New Wave it was almost like ankle weights for you it yeah, just it just it's true. all the momentum that you had and you got there with Gruber and Walden and it's almost like it crushed your will well
1: what I, I, I mean I, the irony of it is I used to, I would start to get calls from networks saying, we'd like to hire you to do the show, but not that company. We don't know them. (laughs) And I was like, you don't know them. Like I just got here four minutes ago. And the best was we had sold a show to CMT called muscle car makeover. And we sold that almost within the first month I had lived here. And we did the pilot in Nashville and we go to do a focus group and it's in Vegas. And I invite me and I fly in and, I'm in there with the head of the network it was Paul Villadova at the time and they're getting ready and Paul, who's the head of the network, goes to me and he goes, are we going to, do you want to do the dial or do you want to do the slide thing? I mean, I don't know. You know more about this than I do, Brandt. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Like, I've never been in a room like this before. In my, life. I didn't even know this place existed. And so I just said, ah, oh, you know what? I, I actually like the dial, so I, I, we should probably go with that.
0: Explain to our audience the dial and the no, slide as far as it's testing. It's basically just
1: as the, as the audience watches something in real time, they can dial up whether they like it or they don't like it. And, and the slide? You know, slide is sort of the same sort of thing, but it's just sort of a different on the scale. So, you know, And I just realized that over the years as I was in this business and continuing on in various ways, I got to the point where instead of always feeling like I was fooling everybody, that you know i would pretend like i knew what i was doing and and hopefully nobody caught on you slowly realize that i guess i'm not you know i'm not fooling people as much anymore i, I am starting to know what's going on and then eventually you wake up and you're like i guess I, I guess i know what's happening now i've been in here long enough and so it's it was an interesting transition from feeling like the guy who snuck in past the guard to be to actually feel like i was sort of accepted in the you know i could accept that I, I actually belong in this place and that's
0: sort of, you know. Do you feel like you belong now? Um,
1: you know, growing up, I always wanted to be an American. Always. I'd watch TV and I'd watch your parades and your pep rallies and the cheerleaders and the football teams. And it just
0: seemed so amazing. That's funny. Growing up in Longmeadow, I always wanted to be Canadian. Yeah, see, I
1: Canada just doesn't have the same celebratory attitude. And, and I realized it was one day I, I came here and I was driving a convertible and I was riding down the 405 near sunset and it was christmas time and i was getting a bunch of emails and sending out merry christmas to everybody and i realized like i had been in the country for less than a year and i already had more friends and felt more connected to people here you know in a year than i had in almost 30 years in in canada i never felt like i fit there i never felt like it was right and los angeles and this business and this country just felt so right for me you know
0: and you've done a lot of different things and I, I, I can't go into everything you've done. I wanna talk about your experience being you worked at a network one time. Uh you were hired away from a place which was a, a unique situation and then you went to the network. Talk about that experience, the good, the bad and the ugly.
1: Um yeah, so I was I was running reality for a big production company at the time and I got called
0: That company was, it was
1: called GRB Entertainment and we do like intervention and did Growing Up Gaudi. and it was a very successful company and we had a good run and so I got called to come run programming for TLC While you were under
0: contract. While I was in a contract, yeah. And how did you handle that?
1: I just said, "Hey Gary, they want me to run programming for TLC. Let me out of my contract. I'll buy something from you."
0: See, and that's how it works again, the navigation how you go into a certain situation and how you get to a certain place with ease as opposed to difficulty, yeah you offer somebody something yeah that was on the side. that wasn't
1: a that wasn't a difficult get out of contract free card that was that was okay um you know it was it was an interesting time. The idea was that they were going to revolutionize t l. c they were going to move it to Los Angeles. They were going to make it become its own standalone network from the Discovery Communication family.
0: I feel like I met with you the first day or week you were there. Yeah,
1: and it was a very, it was a very exciting prospect. And you know, the woman who was my boss, who had sort of been taken on to run the entire thing, was very dynamic. Who was that? Angela Shapiro Mathis. Yeah. You know, dynamic and fun and amazing and a, just tenacious and you know, and and so we got along very well and. And it was interesting seeing the other side of, of the desk and seeing what it took to sort
0: of to do that. So now here you were pitching things before and now you're sitting in an office and yeah. people are coming in and pitching you. Yeah, almost exactly so four you, years to the day that I had moved down to Los Angeles. I so was, you're now seeing yourself in these chairs, yeah. hawking you their wares. Yep. Telling you the same bullshit pitches I yeah. used to tell them. And it was difficult because I made a lot of mistakes in
1: many ways but one of the was as, a, as
0: as a networking yeah because
1: I, one of the things I used to do was I used to try to fix everybody's ideas and so because I guess as a producer when you're getting ideas you're you're always trying to craft them into something and so I would get pitches from people and if it wasn't right for us I would try to craft it into something that was right for us and so you sort of ended up with only one of two bad options at that point you either help somebody with their idea that they go sell to one of their competitors or you don't and you look like somebody who feels like they're smarter than everybody all the time trying to fix everything. It just, it, you know, I had to really ho- tone down my sort of, I want to be involved in your idea. Cause I, I remember when like, I
0: met with you, you were like, uh, listen, I'm buying the Miss America yes. right now for like four or $5 million. I'm like, why are you buying Miss America? That's not your game. I, I don't know, Barry, but it's, 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 it's supposed to be very big. It's, you know, it's, it's one of the highest rated <laughs> things. Uh, and I'm buying Miss America. That's yeah. my job here. Yeah. It worked out really well for us. That <laughs> one, you know, it did, it did huge ratings for us on TLC. And by the way,
1: Miss America ended up back on ABC because of that.
0: Yeah. So there you go. I
1: saved those beauty queens.
0: And so, so, so tell me how that all ended. I got fired. How many times have you been fired in your life? Like, you know, other than when I was a kid getting fired from a job, this one was tough. Got it. So tell me how it came down when you got fired. Did you know it was coming?
1: No, it was a complete and wild surprise. And basically Angela knew that it was coming. Because and you'd been there how long? I'd been there about a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was much smarter and could see that the writing was on the wall from almost the day she started. You know, her and her big boss did not seem to click. And I think that what they promised her she was going to be able to do with the network and the runway she was going to get to sort of get there was not maybe accurate. You know, the programs that we put out, some worked, lots didn't. So we hadn't, we hadn't lit the world on fire as we were hoping, as had we had told everybody as the, as the promise was. So she knew she would, she only had a few months to live, basically. But so, she didn't tell you. No, she told me. Well, that, that was the, the end of the, of my reign, which was, Hey, I, I only have a few months to live and Brent, you're out.
0: <laughs> oh, God. You know what I mean? So she was the one who had to fire you.
1: Yeah. And she, you know, she, she gave me sort of the heads up and like, hey, you know, this is what's going to happen. I'm out. You're out. You, you go now. You get to keep your deal that way and it'll be good for you. So, you so know, you I
0: got paid for the remaining of, of the your, deal. Con- of my contract. I was stayed there. Was your contract there. a one year deal or a more? Uh, two years plus something. So I you got. So you got paid significantly well. Significantly.
1: And that and that was really her sort of like, hey, I dig you and I want to protect you. And so I stayed for, I don't know, a couple months as we figured out how to do the transaction and when to make it official kind of thing. Um, you know, and that was tough. It just, at the end of the day, you know, I was getting paid extremely well and then I didn't have to work for a year, which in theory sounds great, but... Getting fired sucks. There's no other way to be around it. And I I remember the day specifically where they had, uh, you know, like Hollywood reported as the 50 most important people in in reality. And like at that time, running that network, I would have been in maybe 15, 16, maybe you know 18 at the worst case scenario. And so like, but a week after you're fired, you wouldn't be 1,800 on the list. And that does take a little bit emotionally to get used to. And I remember a girl named Jessica Samet was running programming at Lifetime, who I was very fond of. And we got along great. And I had lunch in the books with her. And she moved it. And so just normally you wouldn't think much of that. But when you don't have a job and you're just, well, you just feel like, oh, my God, now I'm not important anymore. And
0: And this is what's also kind of incredible. You were making money, you were making a check every week. Yeah, most Americans listening would be like, I can't believe it! I get to be paid and wake up yeah. at the crack of noon and do whatever I want and not worry about anything. I know. But this, but you, because you are truly a great artist and also a great executive, the money. It, that wasn't it. It was the fact that somebody had taken away your validation. Yes. Taken away your heart and and crushed you. Yeah. And it didn't matter about the money because you felt like, how the fuck am I going to get a job? What's, what, who's going to hire me? What's going to happen? Like yeah. you said, I'm 1800 now instead of 18. That's right. And it was tough so because how I. You, how did you come back from that, that failure?
1: All right, listen, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, well, there was two main things because it doesn't, discovery itself has a horrific reputation when it comes to employees and people coming in from outside the building and getting blown out. If you look what Oprah and the own channel did, they switched regime regimes a hundred times before they could actually get people to stay. And then they ended up bringing people internally. And in. so even though it was, you know, a bit, a, a major disaster over there in comparison to, or, when it when you look at the total of what that company does, it's an easy sort of spin where it's just like, well, listen, everybody's been through that with Discovery. Of course, Peter LaGurie just went through it. Jamil Hunter went. Uh, everybody's been in and out and get turfed in the Discovery world if you're not part of their system, if you're not from Silver Spring and that kind of thing. So that was there was a little bit of the spin that was able to sort of like take the, the shine off. You know what I mean? I wasn't like the first person that had got blown out at Discovery. So there's a little bit of that. Time heals all wounds, of course in that sense. And really sort of, you know, when you look at the failure of that position and I always say like part of my sort of angst about it is that it wasn't successful in that position. And the truth was I wasn't the right person for that job. Angela didn't need someone who was as tenacious and a go-getter like her. She didn't need a right-hand man that would push her to push the boundaries of what she was able to do in that position. She needed someone to do the opposite. She needed someone to be a roadblock and say, "Ho." You can't do that. Whoa, stop there. That's, that's going to cause problems. That's going to cause people angst and problems. She would say something and I'd be like, I could, let's do it. And so to be successful in that position, I would have had to have more foresight in the workings of a corporation. And i just, wasn't that person. So, you know, and, and so, but as time goes on, you sort of get over that and you look at where are the strengths of what I do and I create and sell TV shows relatively well in this business and so i was able to find um a bigger more successful runway focusing on that
0: so uh and now you're at uh iworks and yeah. uh and uh you've been there for uh what is it three or four years yeah now? coming
1: on four years at the end of the year
0: it, it's an amazing run you've had there um i want to talk more about uh your holy shit moments if you don't mind sure sort of as before we ride off in the sunset. So tell me your proudest moment professionally.
1: Um, I think the proudest moment was when we had, it's a show a long time ago called The Princes of Malibu. When it got on the air the first time, it was the first big network show that went on. Um, it didn't end up succeeding, so that sucked. But at the time, it was just such a, a Herculean effort to get it on there. That was a really proud moment in the business. Um, a big one was Extreme Makeover Weight Loss Edition that was a show that i literally had to pitch saying you can't get this show on the air if you buy it today for more than a year like most network executives don't think they're going to be in the job for another year let alone like hey i'm going to buy a show today that's going to be on the air and you know effectively that show does save people's lives and there's a little bit of that that goes with that but that was just such a, a you know just a, a monumental sales ability in my life um, and there was a moment when I got the job at TLC where I finally felt like, oh my God, like a lot of people who wanted to head a programming job at a, at a, at a network like that. I got it and I was able to write Jeff Gaspin sort of a letter to finally say, Hey, you wouldn't, re- you, I, you'll barely remember this moment in your life. But the moment you called me when I was in the parking lot and you said, I want, I don't know what this kid does, but I want him. It changed my life Forever. And now it's been four years, and I finally feel like I'm at a point where it's like I can reach out to you and say, "Hey, man, like that changed my life, and I made it in 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 the the United States and in Hollywood because of you." And there was just something about sending that letter, and like you know, that was just a really great moment for me.
0: Your biggest professional disappointment? Oh man, I have had a lot of those.
1: Um, The Prince of Malibu would also be a sad one that it didn't rate better. That was. That was terrible. Um, you know, you, you get over a lot of... Once you had a few failures of television shows, you realize that that is part of the the business itself and that you start to lose a little bit of the sadness. You lose a little bit of the joy as well.
0: I always say, uh, love the business. Right. Don't fall in love with the business. Right.
1: So, you know, I've I've been able to temper my sort of joy and excitement now whereas in, in my youth I was very up and down about things but you know what at the end of the day it's like not having something that I feel I wasn't successful at not making that network thing run better and being able to to navigate that is is still it still gets me a little bit you know it's like I'd almost like to go back to the network game one more time and and do it right you know now that I've learned so much and
0: so that would be a big Do you feel thing. like you're ready to take that kind of step before you said you took the step, but now you look back, you weren't ready right now. Are you a hundred percent ready to be a guy who's the president of reality at a, a network?
1: Uh, it depends on the network. depends on the situation. I'm certainly at a point where I would be able to be more discerning of which jobs would fit with what I do. As you get a little older, you start to understand these are the things I don't do well and I'm not going to change that. These are the things I do really well and, this company and there's been there's been several jobs that have come my way of head of reality at networks that i just was this just doesn't fit with what i do you wouldn't get the value of what i'm good at if i was in that job because i think a lot of those jobs i'd be like oh i know how to do it you just protect your job at all times don't put your neck out for anything just say no as much as you can and there's a little bit of that that goes on in that world
0: tell us one Short story that would be like the highlight chapter of your book in terms of just the craziest fucking thing that ever happened in a meeting or a or in the middle of a production or something that went down that just you just couldn't even believe that it happened.
1: Well, we were shooting The Prince of Malibu. We were about to start shooting. It's a big network show. It's about Dave Foster and his wife. And they're sort of dealing with their kids. And on the first day of shooting, they won't come out of the car. And they're like, I go over to finally get them. What's going on? It's like, we're getting divorced. <laughs> so we have to shoot the entire show pretending that they're married and they're getting divorced on the first day of shooting. That was a little crazy. You know? That
0: might have been a reason why. uh, yeah. uh But that's, I mean, that well.
1: reality TV, it's it's a strange odd world you know we are literally the bottom of the barrel of the entertainment industry we're looked upon as sort of the stepchild of everything and then on the on the flip side that's just in the business and then outside of the business people just look at what we do as the easiest thing in the world i every single person will pitch me a reality show because they think that what i do is so easy that all they have to do is throw an idea and they can make millions of dollars do, do a show about moms doing something, good, cleaning. This is a great show. You should do that. And it's like, this is how easy you think my job is? Just throw out an idea and magic just happens. And-
0: As we wrap up here, I think our, uh, our audience will know the answer to this in some ways. But I think it's important for you to wrap it up uh, just sharing with them. Based on your experiences, if you had any advice for anybody, an executive or somebody in the business who wants to get in the business and wants to experience your kind of success, just in a a, a brief, but concise way, let them know what you feel it takes to get to the next level and to get from humble beginnings to where you are.
1: Oh, man, that's a tough for me because the ends justified the means for me. I just wouldn't I could never recommend anybody to go do things with their own money or Go wildly blindly into things because it's just like I happen to catch a moment in time and Certain something about my blind arrogance worked at that particular moment And I don't I don't know that that's something I would say to someone you should try again But at the end of the day what what comes through In our business and probably most business is passion and when you really truly believe in something and Understand how to get there, and can look at it in some sort of realistic view. Even if the idea or what you're pitching doesn't work, like in my case, that passion and stuff is a commodity. And in this country, Americans applaud, believe in, accept, buy, and trade potential. They what, whatever could happen. There's a there's a there's a dream out there, and Americans love that. And so, people who are passionate about what they do and really, you know can convey that to other people end up sort of rising to the top in that sense, I think.
0: Well, Brant, this has been amazing. I'm so grateful you're here. And I'm so grateful you share with our audience about your side of the business and what it takes to be a young man with a dream and getting there. And uh, I know you're going to be like one of the biggest forces in the business, even bigger than you are now. And <laughs> I'm excited to see it. Thank you so much for Barry Being, Katz, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So listen, everybody. You've been listening to the Industry Standard with uh, me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it. Glory, I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders,
1: walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you because you're going for life is for the dreamer.
0: They have out to gate It's never quite over So it all feels the same
1: You pick your own poison Dig
0: your own grave Down in the valley A fortunate pain